heads and welcome to american prestige i'm denny bessner here as always with derek davison and again apologies for the audio still a bit on my back but things are improving uh, at a rapid pace and so my fantastic audio will return soon and today is a special day because we are excited to welcome back to the podcast our very first guest he took a chance on us when no one else will and of course you love him we know him and that is Stephen Wertheim. Stephen is a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Who would have known that this podcast would still be here like a year plus later from when we first did this? <laughs> Who would have known? <laughs> Who would have known? Yeah, not, not, not us either. This is our Who curse. Would have These are our golden handcuffs, <laughs> this podcast. Um, but, uh, Stephen, you are our first guest and you surprisingly weren't the last guest. And so we are so excited to have you back here today to let us know what's going on in good old Washington, DC, the, the center of the empire, the center of the world, if you will. Uh, so, so thank you very much for that. And why don't we just get right into it? Our, our guests don't like, don't like run-ups. They, they are, they're serious people. They want to just start talking about the, the events, the news of the day. So, Interesting, because whenever I talk to someone from D.C., they're always like really going on about Ukraine and how everyone can't stop talking about it and how this is just, you know, the the, the biggest news of the day. And, and that may be the case, but it's interesting because I don't think I've ever heard in my own life out here in, in beautiful uh, Southern California, anyone, you know, normal, not professionally connected to this world. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard anyone even even mention it or really talk about it. So it, it, it highlights kind of the, the, the disconnect that I see between the rest of the country and D.C. But can you give us a tenor of, of what Ukraine has done to the city, what Ukraine has done to, you know, let's say, quote unquote, progressive foreign policy? And then we could get into your piece about the quote unquote crisis of progressive foreign policy. It's still a little bit hard for me to understand, because for the second time in my adult lifetime or whatever part of my life I could remember, we saw a foreign policy event cause many Americans to hoist flags uh, on their homes. Uh, after 9-11, it was the American flag. This time it was the Ukrainian flag. And there really was a sense of like, you know, 9-11 level fervor, intensity, to the conversation. My sense now is that that intensity is largely still there in Washington among foreign policy experts and commentators, though it has dissipated to some degree since the beginning of Russia's invasion in uh, February. But I think the drop-off in the rest of the country has been greater. Uh, and what's hard to understand about the just the level of, of fervor. I mean, I'm very interested in it. I think Russia's invasion was egregious, and it makes sense that people uh, are concerned about it. Um, and there are a lot of risks involved in actions that the United States and other countries are, are taking. So it's a very important issue, to be clear. But 
the degree of the fervor is somewhat puzzling uh, because prior to the invasion, President Biden stated on no uncertain terms that the use of force was off the table or, or not in the cards is, is what he said exactly. And uh, the United States had no vital interest implicated in a potential war in Ukraine. And not many people seem to dispute that proposition. And yet the war in Ukraine has uh, generated uh, the uh, great deal of attention that 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 you've seen. So I, I think that's something that historians are going to be thinking about uh, in in the future. So here's my take, and I'd love to hear your opinion. I think a few things. I think for people of like the boomer generation, someone like Joe Cirincione, what the what the the conflict in Ukraine provided was effectively, you know, finally you could be part of this good conflict. Like your your parents fought in World War II. It was good guys versus bad. It was Americans versus an obvious aggressor in the case of Nazi Germany. And finally, after Vietnam, after Afghanistan, after Iraq, after Libya, you're able to participate in this romantic war. You could use the the great power of the United States for good. Um and I think that was true of that generation. And then when you get a, a little younger, I, I think there's this romance of being part of, of, of what is perceived to be an epic struggle against an, an obviously vicious and brutal dictator in Putin. I mean, I, I think it's always silly when people try to apologize for him. I, I agree the invasion was is, is a, a terrible thing and, and motivated by a, a lot of brutal ideas about the world and, and what Russia should be. But it allowed you to feel like you're part of this thing while also knowing that the United States was unlikely to send troops. So you could be like fervent about this conflict and feel good about yourself um, and feel like you were on the quote unquote right side of history because all that was happening was like Raytheon and general dynamics were getting contracts to send weapons or something along those lines. And these weapons were in the good guy's hands. Um, so I was wondering if like as someone who, that's just my naive view from 3,000 miles away, or, or am I missing something here? And then Derek, two, you could two-finger that, as we say in the biz. Well, I would, I would like to offer my own take here, Stephen, for you to consider as an alternative. I, I talked about this with Bob Wright on his show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I, 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 I'm not sure that people were looking for a reason to jump ship and kind of get on the war party. And, you know, like actively kind of waiting for something like this. I, I feel like the other possible explanation here is you have a lot of people who adopted a policy of restraint of, you know, the United States is, is a, not a force for good in the world during the Iraq war, essentially, during the, the war on terror, when it was easy to adopt that, that policy. You saw the United States doing bad things, invading Iraq under no pretense, torturing people, uh, you know, all the way through Obama and drone strikes. Uh, and so they jumped on this train of, you know, let's, let's restrain the United States. Let's, you know, tear down the empire. Let's pare it down and, and limit it. And then the Trump happened. And this like caused a great resorting, I think, of uh, a lot of people who were in that boat who kind of moved into these sort of standard uh, let's say left liberal camp. 
And now you have a conflict where it's not the United States, you know, acting as the imperial power. It's not the United States that conducted the illegal invasion. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's just, I think it's been maybe a more passive process by which, you know, now this, this war challenges the notion of what happens when you pare down the American empire. Do other countries fill in the, the gap in ways that we don't like? Uh, and and I think I feel like that's that's another possible explanation here is that they've just sort of uh, been buffeted by a couple of things in recent years that have shaken their initial kind of feelings about about restraint and the, the empire. It seems to me that the two explanations that you've offered are compatible with one another. Derek, yours sounds like a kind of more specific. Um, explanation for what might be motivating people at this particular time, whereas Danny's sounds to me like it, it's occurring over a larger time scale. However, Danny's comment makes me think that you could identify a number of similar moments in the last three decades or so where it felt like people who had been critical of American power in the wake of the Vietnam War became more reconciled to it. I think the collapse of the Soviet Union was such a moment, the Gulf War, the, the first Gulf War in 1990 and 91 was another moment, the humanitarian interventions in the Balkans uh, in the 1990s offered you know some people uh, with a kind of lower profile than the war in Ukraine does now, uh, that moment to say, wait a minute, the use of military force by the United States and the West uh, can do immense good. Uh, 9-11 um, was another moment, right, where the United States had a, a, a quite evil enemy that it was justified in using force against. And I would agree with that as far as that statement goes. Oh, and, God, Steve, we're going to get so many comments. Oh, Why did you I'm say sorry. that? All right. I should have said email evil. Me. The, the truth don't is I don't me. really believe in I don't believe in evil, so I, you know, I, anyway, the U.S. was justified in using force in Afghanistan, though. So people can send the hate mail to Danny. Send it to Danny, not me. I don't want to hear it, and I won't respond anyway. I can't believe Danny said that, actually. That's, Steven's lying. That's he, will, he will respond. He'll text me about every piece. Uh, Steven, the, the fervor, though, does seem different. Sorry to interrupt. Yes. But okay. It does seem different qualitatively. All right. Well, so the point I wanted to make is it's interesting that you might have said along the way for each of these moments that, aha, people were kind of looking for a reason to reconcile themselves to the hegemonic U.S. role of the United States, and yet the effect seems to wear off. Um, and so we keep having these moments. And I wonder whether Ukraine might not be another instance of that. But I do agree that the fervor was quite profound over, over the war in Ukraine. And uh, I think Derek is right that, you know, the experience of the post 9-11 wars caused some people to join a, a camp that was opposing endless war and caused them to be receptive to the idea that the United States was committing sins of its own. And that was something morally and strategically important to pay attention to. At the same time, I do think that um, a number of people who might have identified with restraint as a result, were still had still had a different view about so-called great power competition with China and Russia. 
um, even through the Trump years. And so uh, the fact that, you know, Russia has committed this war of aggression against Ukraine, while we have intensifying uh, competition with, with China, is consistent with a view that would call for the United States to draw down from the greater Middle East and uh, stop the war on terror while focusing on uh, deterring China and Russia. I, I think that the connection between Trump and Russia in particular is quite salient. I mean, the fact that Russia has conducted this investigation or this invasion after we've spent, you know, four years with people convinced that Donald Trump was, you know, sort of acting as a Russian agent and, you know, these investigations. I think that that connection is very powerful here in terms of the mindset that that you see about this war. I, I want to ask you about uh, you, you, you went back into the 90s. You talked about the inv- interventions in the Balkans. I think there's another event from the 90s that is formative here, which is the non-intervention in Rwanda, which is, to me, you know, one of the strands you talk about, the progressive strands you talk about in the piece is the uh, kind of Samantha Power, you know, we should step in and stop atrocities and, you know, prevent authoritarianism. And that that's always struck me as a formative event for that particular strain of like responsibility to protect type thinking. And I'm, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on, on that particular event. Well, I think the closest thing to a prominent progressive foreign policy of the late 1990s and early aughts was humanitarian intervention. And uh, the, the non-intervention in Rwanda is something I've actually written a bit about. And, uh, I think that was the most, um, you know, the, the single most influential episode because it seemed as though it became conventional wisdom years after the 1994 genocide that with just a small force of several thousand troops inserted at the right time, the United States or perhaps the UN, didn't really matter who, uh, could have put a halt to that genocide. And I think actually the reality is it would have required uh, much more troops than that. There are reasons why those troops couldn't have been uh, so quickly deployed. The killings actually began not just in the capital of Kigali, but all around the country quite quickly, which is one of several reasons why the troop estimate is too small. Anyway, we could go on about that. But what's so interesting is that from the time that it became conventional wisdom, that uh, with a very minimal effort, the entire genocide could have been stopped. There was a kind of blindness to um, how difficult it actually would have been to stop the massacre and a lack of attention to well, what, 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 what happens next. Um, not to mention the fact that both sides in the Civil War, which was happening concurrently with the genocide opposed an outside intervention force. So had that intervention actually happened, it could have been opposed by both sides, which is an amazing thing to think about. And I doubt that um, there would have formed the kind of Samantha power position um, if we had actually seen the results, even in this case, which is one of the most clear cut cases you would think where a humanitarian intervention was warranted. So it was partly by by being uh, somewhat restrained at the time, not intervening in the case of Rwanda, intervening 
in Kosovo in what turned out to be a uh, an air campaign that didn't move on to the ground campaign and happened to succeed uh, against a lot of people's expectations at the time because Milosevic surrendered, that this idea became uh, popular that the use of military force could be quick and easy. And obviously that fed into some of the assumptions that led the United States into Iraq and Afghanistan a few years later. So maybe there's a connection to Ukraine in this sense, because precisely because the Biden administration has been somewhat restrained in its response to the war, it's ruled out ground troops in a very clear fashion. It shot down, so to speak, the idea of the no-fly zone that remarkably became uh, a media thing uh, for several weeks after the beginning of the invasion. That allows some people to speak very fervently in the expectation that the United States and Russia are not actually going to have a direct clash over Ukraine. So this kind of leads directly into your piece. But before we do, the other day I I posted something on Twitter about like socialism and left liberalism being in this camp that I think has been being See, that's your problem, Dan. You you posted on Twitter. (laughs) You got to stop doing that. How many times... Can I tell you? I think uh, it's, it's I, I, think I see where you went wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like I like engaging with my public. You know, the only reason I'm mm. here, guys, is for because of all of them. I do it. I do it for them. Oh, I'm sorry for even interjecting <laughs> with a joke. I won't do that again. No, please, please do. Um, but it was interesting because it it really did engender a, a lot of anger, and I, I think that 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 is unique because I think these previous moments of the '90s and 2000s really before 2015, there was no like quote unquote progressive camp wasn't broad enough to include people who I would say would would adopt a traditional Marxist, socialist, anti-imperialist criticism situated in a nation state. Um, And like Marx said a lot of things about a lot of different wars angles as well. And we'll not, we don't need to go back to, you know, the proof texts, but, but I think, um, there's now enough of a camp in the sense for there to be divisions within it. Uh, and you, you were trained as an intellectual historian of us foreign policy. So I'm curious what you think of these kind of divisions within the progressive camp. And then we could use that to get into your piece in a bit of a, a broader sense. Yeah. I was in fact a pro your, your tweet uh, on that particular occasion. So yeah, it I'll seems just... obvious uh, to me, <laughs> but maybe I'm wrong here. Yeah. <laughs> and also I could say uh, just very briefly, I think Tews, Adam Tews, who is a scholar that I respect and who does do great work, I think is reflective of this. There were those, these pieces yep. about him, and he's basically promoting a form of like left liberalism. And right. uh, the attraction that I think of people, a lot of people have to his work is that they, they it is very much not, and I don't think he would say otherwise, socialist or Marxist in any, in any, in any sense. It's very left liberal. And I think that is also a part of, a broader part of this phenomenon of people, particularly millennials, sort of moving into a more traditional left liberal camp. I'm, I'm wondering if you'd comment on that too. Yeah, I also think that it was the evacuation of that left liberal position, which is an honorable position, that led a number of people to think that the alternative was socialism or democratic socialism versus mainstream liberalism. So I think it's you know a sign of some health that we can see a distinctive left liberal position emerge like that, even if, you know, might not be where, where you stand. 
So that I feel. Me, yes. I mean, I feel like people were one of the reasons people got angry about that tweet was it was like it, they felt like Danny was casting them out of the camp or something. <laughs> and I, I don't. That's not it. It's like you, you know you have right. these you have different factions and you try to work together. Yeah, that's acknowledging democracy. that you differ in right. some right. ways, but you have to build coalitions to get anything done. Uh, that that's all I felt like the message was. But yeah, bingo. It's it's good when we have more camps that are prominent and can make us think. And so we do. And that was the spirit in which I wrote this piece about progressive foreign policy, quote unquote, by which I really meant, you know, anything from like Chris Murphy to the left. In fact, I included Samantha Power as a exponent of progressive foreign policy. So I meant it to really mean, you know, anything to the left, whether historically over the last three decades or in our current moment, of, you know, very mainstream liberal internationalism in the, in the United States. So let's get that clear. So I, I'm hoping that there's a kind of harder left position in, encompassed in this piece, but there's also something that's pretty darn close to mainstream liberal internationalism. Good. So, so what do you think as the main divisions right now within the camp? And then we could talk about why you think there might or might not be a crisis. All right. So the the way I laid out the topography of, of progressive uh, foreign policy in the post-Cold War era is I identified what I thought were three groupings which overlap, um, but three groupings where there was a particular emphasis and perspective that a cluster of influential people conveyed. Um, the first one is progressive, what you might call progressive internationalism, which takes opposition to atrocity and authoritarianism as its central thrust. And in this camp, I would include everybody from Samantha Power to Bernie Sanders, especially if you look at Sanders's statements in the Trump era as he was running for president. There was a second group that I call the global cooperators where the emphasis was on having all states as universally as possible take action against common threats like climate change, pandemic disease, and so forth. And as a result, global cooperators can be very close to the progressive internationalists, but they are weary of U.S. actions that might preclude uh, the ability of states to cooperate. And finally, you had the restrainers, uh, whose lodestar is political military restraint by the United States. And to go back to what you said earlier, Danny, I don't think you could have included that group as a politically influential group 10 years ago, maybe no more than, than five or six years ago, did they really emerge and, and have significant force. So that's, I think, where we stood in the era of American unipolarity. And those perspectives could go pretty well together, so long as you could be against America's endless wars in the greater Middle East, you know, for greater cooperation on, on climate change, maybe interested in, in stopping atrocities, potentially through the use of force. Um, there was uh, not an intense contradiction, even though, you know, participants at the time would certainly disagree with each other about about a whole range of things. But now I think because uh, of 
the intensification of strategic rivalry uh, with China and Russia, it's going to cause the camps to split apart and the divisions to be more stark. And I think we've already begun to see that uh, expose itself over the war in Ukraine. So one way things could go is that the global cooperators, that position will be evacuated because there's really no global cooperation to be had between the West and Russia and China. And so they'll have to go one way or the other. And so you could see the uh, progressive internationalists, quote unquote, uh, who are uh, principally opposed to authoritarianism as well as atrocity, more or less joining up with the mainstream liberal internationalists who want the United States to engage in great power competition uh, with Beijing and Moscow, whereas the restrainers uh, take a, a position that's opposed to that, or at least sets very clear limits on what the United States should be willing to commit itself to do in the name of uh, great power competition. Uh, and so that could really polarize progressives. Now, my view is that, you know, there are good reasons to debate the those positions intellectually. But I think that if most people who are who identify as progressives today really think about what they want, um, they will look for ways to reconcile some of their commitments so that, for example, um, yes, you know, the United States can um, promote human rights as best it realistically can, but uh, the defense budget uh, might not be a good thing for progressive priorities for the defense budget to balloon to to say $1.3 trillion, which is, uh, I fear, where we're going if the United States remains the, the leading power uh, that uh, has put itself in the position to deter China from, say, invading Taiwan or Russia from committing uh, any further act of aggression in Eastern Europe. So what do you think is the actual impact of quote-unquote progressives? So my initial response to you is twofold. Once, yes. I'd love to work together. On the se- on the other hand, which one of these is going to become popular? You sound sincere about that. <laughs> uh, I mean, like in an ideal world, sure. Yeah. But I mean, in, in, as you well know, um, one of these is likely to exert more influence than another in, in actually existing U.S. political life. So how do we do that? I mean, it's it's far more likely given institutional inertia given, you know, the plethora of think tanks, given the military industrial complex, given the fact that you could basically read anything you want in, in as, you know, threatening a way as possible, that the liberal internationalist side of the progressive camp is going to be far more powerful than the restraint side. And so what I worry about happening is the restraint, the restrainer, there's one or two in the room. They always say, don't do it. And then the other nine people say, do it, and it gets done. So how do you address with that just political reality, as it were? Well, I, I share your concern uh, completely, and that's really why I wrote the piece, because I think people who are understandably you know, adamant about how egregiously Russia has acted in Ukraine should think carefully about you know, not just what they want the endgame in Ukraine to be, but about where U.S. foreign policy should go beyond that, both for its own sake and in light of domestic priorities. So 
you know, but, but people, I, Steven, people don't give a yeah. shit. I mean, they, they pay attention to Ukraine for four months and then, you know, they write about like economic policy. I mean, these are, this is, this is the problem is that they don't actually care. They haven't given it in many instances, this deep, profound thought. They don't have deep historical knowledge. So it just never happens. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, th- that is just the, the structure of the thing. You know, you write a few articles or whatever, and then you move on to writing about the midterms, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, on some level, all I could do is, <laughs> is you know, advocate the way I would like more people to think in the expectation that a whole lot of powerful people will not think this way. Um, but maybe, <laughs> maybe I can get a few more people to think this way. Right. For so, sure. For sure. So that's, that's what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, I do think that, um, there is a dynamic debate happening in Washington and in the rest of the country because the risks that, we're now facing, in a sense, just to maintain the status quo, just to maintain American primacy, uh, are so much greater than they've been in the last three decades. I mean, the prospect of going to war with China over Taiwan really clarifies the mind, or it should. Likewise, you know, Russia, a nuclear peer to the United States, and that clarification isn't happening quickly enough or fully enough, but these are really serious issues. And so, you know, to take the China example, I think there's a different coalition one can assemble on that issue uh, to, to try to move toward a more responsible U.S. policy than there is on other issues over the Middle East. Um, so, you know, we'd have to talk about the kind of power dynamics in, in specific instances. Um, but, I do think that, you know, we ought to be able to get to a place um, after the war in Ukraine where people are more attentive to um, longer range considerations, structural considerations, more quickly than we did after 9-11. It took years and years of the wars in Iraq and particularly Afghanistan to actually get to that place. Uh, in the case of Ukraine, the United States has not been attacked, and that matters. And you can see that matter in the way that the fervency in most of the country outside of certain parts of Washington, D.C. has dwindled. Um, I haven't heard about war. it in literal months, like literally months. It's so wild. Whenever, That's right. I, talk to, whenever I talk to someone from D.C., I think I was talking to uh, Kelly Vlahos for their, their podcast. It was very fun. And she's like, how do you handle it with everyone talking? I'm like, I haven't, it, my, it just does not come up literally ever. You know, it's, yep. it's very interesting. No, I could really see um, uh, people stop asking me when I say, oh, is it what I do? Um, I no longer am pelted with questions about the war in Ukraine. It was, it happened very quickly. And that means that, you know, if the war settles into what looks like a stalemate where we're not achieving something. People were very excited because they saw the Ukrainians heroically resisting and overcoming the odds uh, to uh, to repel Russia's initial in- invasion. But, you know, the prospects for the war in Ukraine to take on the qualities of a quote-unquote endless war are, you know, greater than they were of the U.S. war in Afghanistan or Iraq 
you know, six months into those wars. And so if the U.S. economy has real problems that are connected to the war or even not connected to the war, and if Ukraine is not making uh, good progress in the war, uh, I think we will get to a place of greater skepticism uh, more quickly than we did in the wake of of 9-11. And then, you know, that data will also tell us something about the ability, uh, the willingness of the American public and the American political system to make enormous sacrifices uh, over, you know, very distant issues where the U.S. role is questionable, like like over Taiwan. I, I can't imagine what would a, what would Joe Biden or his successor actually do if China launched an outright invasion of Taiwan. On the I one think hand, nothing. yeah, yeah, I think nothing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, look, this I is don't know. Problem. They're both unthinkable. Look, they're 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 both un, un, unthinkable alternatives. The idea of doing nothing, you know, I think it would have major political literally liabilities nothing, nothing for the president. That would, nothing that would repel an invasion or risk a war. That's what I mean. They they would do something. Yeah. For sure, I'm not mean. I don't mean literally that way. But no, I, I understand. But 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 also, they would know if if they went to war with, with China, that would mean casualties rapidly. It would mean crashing the economy. I, I just think we have to get to the place where we can really understand the choices that we're facing much more quickly than we're doing right now, because the the, politi- the American political system is used to three decades at least of the United States facing and usually beating up on much smaller, weaker powers or ragtag terrorist groups, things like that. That is not what we're dealing with, with respect to great powers. Let's get into this in a second, because I think there's two. There's, there's Taiwan and Ukraine are connected, but separate. Let's talk about Ukraine, and then I want to talk about Taiwan. For sure. Ukraine on this podcast, what we're talking about, like our, our essential position is that regardless of the nobility of the struggle and regardless of Putin's guilt, just sending arms will just reinforce this domestic political economic structure that I would argue, i.e. the military industrial complex that has done enormous damage. And plus, you know, the fog of war and all those other arguments that usually if you look historically, you can't predict, you can't control, etc. I was wondering if that's your basic position or you differ in any way. And then after that, we'll move on to Taiwan. I think I differ uh, a bit. I am more comfortable with sending arms to Ukraine than what you just described, provided, and this is very important qualification, that the United States is providing and perhaps even making very clear what Ukrainian forces uh, are to do with those weapons to avoid the risk of escalation, and provided that we have a good strategy uh, and an outcome in mind, which I'm concerned that we don't. Right. So we don't have the latter, and the former is basically impossible. So I'm essentially saying, you're saying you agree with us, but you can't say it because you work in Washington, D.C. Got it. Uh, No, (laughs) I'm not saying that. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm not saying that, but... um, and it's honestly a little hard to assess what exactly we're we're telling the Ukrainians. So I don't know for sure. So what wh- where I think I'm where I would put the emphasis. So I I, I totally share the criticism of uh, the structure, right? Um, and my emphasis has been 
not so much on uh, should we sell uh, send weapons to Ukraine, but rather how does the United States draw down in Europe and get the Europeans to do what they need to do to defend Europe uh, so that we're not in the same position of being the provider of defense in the future. That to me is the key issue. So I would like to see the Biden administration, you know, whether or not it did something different with the way that it's uh, providing uh, weapons and intelligence to Ukraine. I'd like to see the Biden administration uh, making clear to the Europeans that, you know, they need to um, start to replace the U.S. military presence yeah. in Europe. Sure. Do you see that happening? <laughs> no, it's not happening. Yeah, but no, it's I not think even that come it, close. Yeah. I, no, it's not happening. Yeah. But it, I, I, you know, it doesn't mean that start, I, you know, I think you actually, it's not meaningful to take that position. Yeah. This is, this is kind of the interesting conversation I have with disease. This is why I think in a situation like this, the maximalist position is actually worthwhile because the step positions are nowhere near happening either. So might as well just like go after the entire shebang, right? Like Aziz's point, I don't know if you listened to that one, um, but he was like, you know, you need to have these sophisticated arguments for Ukraine when you're arguing with people and and you can't just be no. But I actually think in in a world (laughs) where those, those reformist steps, let's say, are are as pie in the sky as ending the military industrial complex, why not just go all in? Why not just go all in on the actual, like, structural argumentative claim? I, I, but I feel like I am making the structural argument. I mean, there is no alternative to pie in the sky. Saying that we shouldn't send arms to Ukraine is as pie in the sky as saying that we should right. reduce troops in Europe and tell the Europeans that they better take care of their shape, own defense. Ship up and shape, shape up. In fact, I think it would be more politically, it might even be politically easier for Biden to to do what I'm describing than to suddenly cut the Ukrainians off. Right, right. That's true. I, I feel like it's, it, the key here is whether anybody has considered what the end game looks like or if this is just going to go on forever and we're going to keep arming the Ukrainians forever because that serves an agenda in Washington to bleed Russia in this conflict and just keep bleeding Russia in perpetuity. I mean, I, I, I think my, my position on this is like the instant Putin ordered the invasion, it was from the standpoint of a progressive foreign policy or a, even a restraint foreign policy trying to, uh, you know, get these things, you know, advance these causes. It was a lose. This is, this was a loser no matter what happened. Um, either, you know, the Russians are going to be victorious in some way, which rewards an imperial operation, an invasion of another country, you know, unprovoked, really, aggression. I mean, we can talk about all the things that came, you know, that led up to that, and that's fine, but ultimately the decision to invade is is indefensible to me. On the other hand, you know, as Danny, you know, has said, you, you have these structural things going on that are just going to be reinforced about the U.S. empire because of this conflict. So it's it's lose-lose to me either way. And the only thing, I mean, the consideration is what, what are you doing? You know, what, what policy would preserve the most lives, I think, would save the most lives at this point? And that, to me, uh, you know, so far, I think maybe providing weapons to Ukraine has, has helped to 
do that is help to save lives. But if the goal is to keep doing that forever and make this a conflict that never ends, then it it y- y- that's that's not going to be in the long term interest of uh, protecting people and and you know uh, kind of keeping people alive. So I don't know. I feel like somebody needs to have an end game in mind or else this is, uh, you know, this is a very dangerous, still a very dangerous situation. Yeah. And the reality is it's often very difficult to have an end game in mind, you know, especially in the early phases of, of, uh, of an event that was whose, whose opening, you know, days were very hard to predict. So that is one of the tragedies here, but I think it's, it's become less forgivable you know, by the day since then, uh, to, um, have what seems to be a pretty open-ended, um, commitment to supply, uh, Ukraine with weapons. And there, you know, there's clearly, uh, communication by the U S government to, to tell the uh, Ukrainian government that, for example, they should not be sending missiles into, uh, Russian territory. And so far, the Ukrainians have uh, have abided by seemingly abided by uh, those restrictions uh, for the most part, which is somewhat remarkable, given that, you know, um, they have a pretty good argument to make that fair is fair. They should be able to uh, attack uh, Russian territory since Russia has attacked their territory. Um, But, you know, I, I do think that the. The, from, from what I can tell, the administration um, has made a pretty open-ended commitment. And I fear that the, the Ukrainians may not understand what I think is the genuine uncertainty about how much the West is going to be willing to do to support Ukraine. And they need to be making calculations, and we need to be making calculations taking seriously the possibility that it may not be in uh, our interest uh, or it may not be politically possible to continue to provide this, this kind of support over the longer term, six months from now, even, you know, three months from now, as we get into the winter could look very different. So, I, you know, I, I agree. There's, there's, there are no good options whatsoever. And this is what happens, you know, when, <laughs> When the United States um, suppresses initiatives by other states to provide for their security, the United States suppressed an independent European defense mechanism since the 1990s. We said we want to be out front on the front lines of any potential conflict with a resurgent Russia. Uh, We've sent the same kind of message in, in Asia. And then when a moment of crisis happens, it's, you know, either the United States helps or perhaps nobody does. So we've gotten ourselves into a very bad position. The question for me is, and I think we agree on this, right? How do we change that structural situation going forward? And how do we do so quite quickly? Uh, I don't think that the answer is to not provide, you know, to suddenly cut off arms for Ukraine. And furthermore, I don't see that happening. But I do think that we've missed an opportunity, essentially. Maybe maybe it's still there. But so far, we missed an opportunity as the Europeans were coming to grips with the reality of a large scale conflict 
on their continent for the first time in a while to say, all right, you know, this is your responsibility fundamentally. And we're going to have your time to shine, guys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, I mean, the, the other consideration you sort of alluded to it is the longer this goes on, the pressure for escalation in terms of what we're supplying just gets bigger and bigger. I mean, we've seen it already. We weren't going to give the Ukrainians long-range artillery until we did. And then we gave them long-range artillery with short-range munitions. But the pressure to give them longer-range munitions and maybe to open the door to strikes inside Russia is only going to grow. The pressure to give them planes. I mean, this was a bit, you know, something that, that emerged in the beginning and we said no, but now we're talking about it again. Drones, you know, all this stuff. You know, and and it, the pressure comes not just from the Ukrainians asking for these things because they think it'll help the war effort, but from the contractors who see dollar signs uh, and what a lucrative opportunity this is for them. The more sophisticated uh, and powerful you you supply, you know, the, the weapons are that you're supplying them with. Uh, but I wanted to ask you uh, about your second category of uh, progressive foreign policy, the global cooperators, because I think like building real international institutions and making international law actually mean something is a is a pathway to taking care of all of these different interests that you can protect you know, human rights, and you can, you know, prevent atrocity, you can do it while stepping down the US military, reducing the the size of the US military, but it's, it's only possible through restraint, right? The only way you get to this place, and Danny, I'd be interested in your thoughts too here is, uh, if you restrain the US, because the US and, and nation states really all over the world who reject the idea of building you know, generally, genuinely powerful uh, international institutions. I mean, the U.S. still has a law in the books that we will invade the Hague if a U.S. service member is is arrested and taken there uh, to be put on trial. It's you know that that kind of stuff prevents international law or international institutions from meaning anything. And I, I'm curious how you know how do you envision or do you do you think it's worthwhile trying to get uh, to a place where we get past the nation and and more. Uh, transnational, especially with things like global warming and pandemic kind of, you know, uh, being the big challenges moving forward. Uh, And how do we do that? The the way that I view this is that any sort of project like that, the the problem that plagued this entire sort of project from the beginning in the era that Stephen identifies in his book is that it was envisioned as global from, from the jump, as it will. I think the only way something like that would work is with the development of regional blocks. Like the United States, Canada, and Mexico are in some material sense effectively one polity. They're not politically one polity. And so if you want to start building to the sort of world that Derek is describing, that's where you start. That's one of the reasons that I think the United States should spend less time on Europe, should spend less time on East Asia, because I think that the the type of sort of global world that was envisioned by liberal internationalists in the 40s is effectively impossible, almost ontologically. You know, you, you are just too far philosophically you can't control. So the way to start building out that sort of global world that I would, you know, that Derek was talking about defined by real international law that's democratically applied is to begin in these sorts of regional blocks. Now, the problem is that if that were to happen today, it would just be dominated by, you know, the United States. Just like if, you know, people complain about the Constitution, if we had a new revolutionary Constitution, it would be like by Amazon and Monsanto or what have you. But I think like that is a bigger, that, that is the way to think about it as opposed to on this like huge global scale, which is something that 
is really never never talked about on the on the left. And just to add very quickly, there was a lot there in Derek's thing, but Stephen, I'd also like why isn't everything we're saying you think taken seriously by like thinkers under forty five who weren't as shaped by the Cold War, who weren't as shaped by, you know, the decades of propaganda and, and the memory of World War II. It's strange to me that these very obvious considerations are just ignored. In in Washington or in the American uh, In the elite. So the in, in Washington DC in the media. I go back and forth the more I'm in Washington, like Am I am I pleasantly surprised by the amount of you know sober thinking that occurs in Washington, <laughs> or am I depressed that my low expectations are being confirmed? What I can say is that there are a lot of experts who would take what you're saying seriously, right? Um, and they're not necessarily the most visible and they're usually not writing for the Washington Post op-ed page or the Wall Street Journal op-ed page, which is unfortunate. Um, so sometimes I have that reaction. And again, I think, you know, when we saw the, the no-fly zone idea, uh, get mooted early in the war in Ukraine, or we come to this issue of uh, the one China policy and waging a war with China over Taiwan, I do think that, um, you know, the, the position of, of people in the establishment will look a bit different from, you know, what you saw when the question was Iran, Afghanistan, et cetera. So I don't think these are unserious questions. I do think so when, when it, when, or what you're saying is, is taken unseriously exactly but i would say in response to derek that i think it's kind of the wrong way to look at international law as an alternative to balances of power and i detected a little bit of that in your question i think for the united states if the choice is you know do we rely on international law to keep russia from committing further acts of aggression in in Eastern Europe or to keep China from uh, harassing Taiwan and potentially invading Taiwan, you know, A, I think the answer is no. You don't rely on international law to do that. And B, you're also going to lose a political argument um, if you ground the argument in respect for abstract international law. I think international rules, norms, and laws can be effective and meaningful in the context of an international power structure that make them work for the parties that have power. That sounds a little circular, but um, that I think no, is the tools best of realistic expectation we could yeah. have. They're they are tools, tools of, of hegemony. hegemony. They could also, though, be tools of power balances without a hegemon. If the United States were to were to pull back, sure. um, in theory, that's a possibility as well, right? We saw this in you know the Europe, the classical balance of power era, right, decades ago. Um, people were really the into is, international Stephen, law. That the difference is the escape valve for, for that was colonialism. I think that system doesn't function without colonialism, and so we don't have that in quite that way. I, I firm believer in neo-colonialism. Everyone, don't get don't get mad. But right. that the literal sending people <laughs> to exploit and extract functions differently today than it did then. 
That's why I think I think that is the context that made international law work. Plus, it didn't always work. Austro-Prussian, Franco-Prussian, et cetera, et cetera, Crimean War, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, but but it, well, international law also had a different structure then. Like w- war was treated more like a duel, sure. so it was True. acceptable. And now we say war is illegal. But Danny, from your perspective, doesn't cap- good old capitalism provide the neo-colonialism, all the neo-colonialism you would need? Why do you need colonies? Well, I think this is the the big theoretical question, actually. Like, we have all of our great leftists writing on the global capitalism. We have much less on security, and particularly how a nation-state embedded security structure interacts with a genuinely global capitalism. Like, that is the theoretical problem of, of the post-45 period, that, you know, American theorists, which is the Western European theorists, which is frankly this group that I know best because that is my background in academia, haven't really, haven't really taken on in quite the same way. Yeah. Wallerstein did it a little bit, but not really. Yeah, Leo yeah, yeah. Panitch and, and, and Ginden in their book basically black box security. You can't really do that, you know, in an age of American hegemony. And so that, 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 that is my answer to that question. We don't know. Fair, fair enough. But to get, to get banal and, and practical for you. You know, I think we can have stability in Europe, uh, even with Russia the way it is. Totally, one hundred percent. Europeans uh, put uh, even half the resources that they ought to be able to contribute to deter Russia. That's a very formidable deterrence of Russia. You don't need the United States for that, except perhaps to provide some forms of support in the short term or medium term, and. You know, that goes whether you have a, a respect for international law and institutions in, in Moscow or in, or in Brussels or you don't. Totally agree. I, I mean, I, I totally agree. Um, I think that something like that is actually going to happen. I know people are speaking of Ukraine as reinvigorating NATO, and I think that's true in the short term. But I think this will actually be in, in terms of medium ish macro history. This will be a turn. And I think Europe's going to take more responsibility, quote unquote. For its defense, that is my that is my guess. Um, Stephen, I we think didn't... the turn. I think the term was Trump. I mean, the, the, yeah, that was the agreed. point where where Europe said maybe we can't rely on. And and I I feel like there is the, the possibility if you know unless there is a, another. I hesitate. You know, I shudder to even think another Trump term. But somebody like that, somebody with that uh, sort of foreign policy view. Um, you know, succeeding Biden, whether it's in 24 or 28, I, I think uh, it will be very easy for the Europeans to to fall right back into the same pattern and say, oh, Trump was an aberration. Let's not worry about it. Uh, yeah, it, it'll also be interesting when here in the United States, the boomers fade from the scene and a new generation of policymakers like take over. It's kind of a similar situation that happened in, in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. You know, you get people who are who came of intellectual age in the 1880s and 1890s and 1900s, giving way to like the people who are first dealing with mass publics and things like that. That'll that'll also be a big a big shift. So, but but we've been going for a while. But I do want to talk for a second about Taiwan. And so, President Joseph Robinette Biden, friend of the pod, uh, basically gave comments the other day that the United States would defend Taiwan. His administration says that's not quite what he meant. Um, what do you think is going on just internally? And then what do you think the U.S. policy toward Taiwan actually is? 
I mean, this is like the third or fourth time he's done this, so it's not. Yeah, it's wild. It's, it's like it's a not year. an isolated incident. Yeah, this is number four at least um, in terms of when he suggested that the United States has a commitment to defend Taiwan and would defend Taiwan if invaded by mainland China. In addition, in this instance, he said while saying that the United States continues to uphold its one China policy, he said that the United States does uh, not encourage Taiwan to take steps toward independence. And that's their decision. And the under the one China policy, the US position is that the United States does not support Taiwan independence, which is something that you know, Secretary of State Tony Blinken and other members of his administration uh, have have said multiple times. Uh, it's quite different for the president to be saying that the United States doesn't encourage independence and, and it's up to them. Uh, we're supposed to be deterring them from taking unilateral steps to change the, the status quo in addition to deterring China from uh, attempting to resolve uh, its uh, Taiwan question uh, through the use of force. So these comments, I think, are worse than what uh, Biden has said in the past. So what was your question? I totally forgot now. What do you think this indicates within the administration that they're having this back and ah, forth yes. constantly? What are they doing? And- what is yeah? What are they doing? I don't think it's twenty seven dimensional chess. Yeah. I think he says things and they walk yeah. it back. Um, but what does that suggest about U.S. policy toward Taiwan? Because I find it very difficult to imagine that the U.S. would even risk a World War Three over Taiwan. Um, and whenever <laughs> I hear people say that they would, people people generally talk talk about like basically computer chips and things along those lines, which China is now trying to replace its own industry, and it just doesn't again yeah. seem not to. T- no, I'm not even let's not even talk about like the, the, the morals or the ontology of the conflict, just the reality. I just don't see that happening by any U S president. So I, it seems like people are not t- to my mind accepting that maybe I'm wrong, but what's your situation? What do you think is going on? And what do you think that the policy actually would be? I think what's going on is that Biden is trying to gain a little extra deterrence through these supposed gaffes by suggesting that, well, whatever U.S. policy formally is, Joe Biden is really committed to to defending Taiwan, and so Xi Jinping shouldn't try anything. Um, it doesn't make sense to me that this would be a good way of, of gaining some insurance for free, some, some deterrence uh, just through this verbal, these verbal statements. I think the statements are more likely to be provocative, meaning that they're more likely to communicate to Beijing that the U.S. is no longer abiding by the one China policy, that the U.S. would not, in fact, uh, uh, allow Taiwan to be reconciled with China at some point, regards Taiwan as part of its strategic network And therefore, because I believe that China, if faced with a situation where it believes that the United States will not allow any kind of reunification, it will go to war. I think 
Therefore, Biden's statements are more likely to be uh, provocative and bring about the kind of war that he's trying to deter than it is to add to deterrence. You know, I guess an alternative explanation would be that he's uh, continues to reject the advice of all his advisors and or be confused about what the one China policy meant, even though he's got a lot How of experience dare in this you? area. That's president. <laughs> And I'm trying to be nice. But I don't think that's to be to be fair to Biden. I think he's just making a major, um, major mistake in his foreign policy, um, rather than failing to understand what he's doing. Um, I might have, you know, said the opposite after gaffe number two, but not not now. So what do you think the US would do? We'll end on that happy note. I think it's you know, it depends on the circumstances about how how Boo, the Chinese give a real answer. Yeah, give a yeah, real yeah. answer. I mean, I, okay. But assuming that, you know, quote unquote, out of the blue, if tomorrow, without Taiwan making yes, that. any further moves, right? Uh, China invaded Taiwan. <laughs> I think the U.S. would attempt at a minimum to apply the kind of... Uh, moves it's made to support Taiwan to China. It would be a lot harder because it would be potentially very difficult to resupply Taiwan and get naval forces there. So it depends on whether China can create a blockade. I think we might try to take steps to prevent that from happening, which could mean war. I think we would attempt to impose economic consequences on China trying to get as many countries to go along with us in that process as we could. Although it would be much more difficult, I think, to, to, to do that. A lot would depend on... So you how, think the U.S. Would, would destroy its economy? That always seems questionable to me. That's this, that gap does not seem... I people agree. say that. I agree. You yeah. know, I'm not the sure that would actually is, happen. I'm, I'm just trying to think about what is happening in the situation room in, at, in the early hours and, and days of this Taiwan conflict. And I think one thing that would happen is that the, the stock market would plunge anyway, right? Regardless of what the U.S. did. For sure. Because and the president would have that this. in mind. So you're right. I, I, I think it's, as I said before, I think it's almost unthinkable either way that the United States would make a serious effort to counteract China's invasion of Taiwan because of all the economic consequences and that the United States wouldn't make a serious effort, whether that means exactly going to war or something more ambiguous. This is why we shouldn't be playing around with this issue. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Stephen Wertheim, thank you so much for joining us again. We'll be sure to have you back much sooner than it took. You know, we had to have internal discussions about, you know, whether whether you were worthy, but we decided in the end, yes. So thank you. I hope in a year from now, I continue to make the cut. And I also have to say, I see Derek wearing, proudly sporting an American prestige shirt. Well, this was, am I, I mean, not entitled? The official anniversary. We could we could make that happen. Actually, we should make that happen. That's yeah, a commitment. Our first guest, definitely, an yeah. unyielding commitment, rock solid. 
ironclad. <laughs> <laughs>